0: There's been a few changes in the last session. Uh, one uh, person, uh, Melina Halberstam, uh, wasn't able to come here today. Joe so we'll Copper had to go back to Parliament where he's actually working on the Canadian government. Canada may be one of the first countries to pass the legislation that we'll hear more about uh, dealing with issues of the site. And So he went back to Ottawa to deal with that. So he's not going to be here. So the way the session will will work, um, we're going to have Gregory Gordon speak. The title of his paper is From Incitement to Indictment. Prosecuting Mahmoud uh, Ahmadinejad for advocating Israel's destruction this is a very important uh, topic and one that the Yale initiative and members of our academic community have been very much engaged in uh, and actually wrote a, a piece in early uh, on incitement and actually presented it at the OSCE and in Bundestag uh, and pressing the actually just in the House of Commons and the House of Lords of the United Kingdom dealing with, with this issue as well. So, I think it's a very important issue and cuts to one of the main concerns of uh, a research center of human anti-Semitism. So, once Professor Gordon has finished, uh, Dhabi Menasheri, who's the director of the Center for Iranian Studies at Tel Aviv University, I'll sort of make some uh, summing up, uh, ending keynote talk about the, uh, the issues that we discussed uh, last night and tonight, and perhaps ways to uh, to have an action or something come out of this this event. So it's really a pleasure to be able to introduce Gregory Gordon. He's a professor of law at the University of North Dakota and is one of the leading legal scholars on those very issues. Is it possible to adjust the light?
1: Um, For those of you who were at the talk um, last night by uh, Erwin Kotler, you've got a pretty good sense of the scope of my discussion. Um, I think he gave you a good overview of the law and some of the issues that are involved. What I propose to do is to break things down a little bit more and analyze um, the potential uh, liability of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad for um, incitement crimes. Um, And I'm going to focus on what would be a criminal trial. Could he actually be brought to justice uh, on criminal charges for his uh, incendiary statements regarding Israel and Israeli Jews? Um, So that's going to be the focus of my talk. And I'm going to look and I'm going to break down um, the issues. Now, of course, where all this furor began was his statement on uh, October 25th, 2005, that um, Israel must be wiped off the face of the map at the World Without Zionism Conference, which was one of the early significant uh, moments in his presidency. And people have focused on that statement a lot. Um, and I, I want to begin by saying that part of what I'd like to do today is dispel the notion that if Mahmoud Ahmadinejad is liable for incitement crimes that is limited to this statement. That, to me, is a mistake to think of. it is. It is not this statement alone, because frankly, if it were just this statement, I wouldn't be standing up here. I, mean, there, I don't think we, we would, I mean, we might have a discussion related to other issues, but it wouldn't be criminal prosecution. So let's, let's kind of just explore a little bit what issues come up as a result of the idea of a potential criminal prosecution of the Iranian president. First of all, does the developing body of incitement law, um, which has really taken on a, a life of its own through the Rwandan genocide prosecutions, does it permit prosecution of a sitting head of state whose words actually defy easy translation and whose audience appears amorphous? So we're going to look, of course, at what the words are and what the audience might be. Secondly, even if it does, would prosecution run afoul of the law in the absence of actual rather than threaten mass atrocity? If we don't have an actual genocide, can we successfully bring a prosecution for incitement to genocide? Third, may a politician face crimes against humanity charges when he has supported attacks by third-party clients against civilians he is threatening in his speeches? but has not perpetrated the attacks himself directly. Okay, because that is an issue that we have, and and one of the things that I'd like to point out right now is that, frankly, I I think one of the contributions that I've been able to make in this discussion is I think I've been the first person to propose that Ahmadinejad would be liable for crimes against humanity. There have been scholars talking about incitement to genocide, but not crimes against humanity, and I'll explain why I think that's in play in a moment. And then finally, of course, and this is really a, a salient issue in the United States, um, is there nevertheless a risk that any such criminal charges could impermissibly <clears throat> infringe on hallowed free expression rights? Um, and of course here in the United States with our First Amendment and the way that we cherish free speech this is an issue that needs to be addressed. So I will cover those issues uh, in the course of my talk. What I, the roadmap where I propose to go is I'm gonna briefly look at, in my paper, I I have a paper uh, that's coming out on this, it's gonna be in uh, volume 98 of the Journal of Criminal Law and Criminology from Northwestern University, (coughs) uh, volume 98, number three, Um, it should be out in June. And in my paper I talk a little bit about the history of Iran and the rise of Ahmadinejad, I try to situate Because a lot of incitement law deals with context. And it's important to understand the context of statements that are being made by Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Secondly, I break down the statements themselves. Of course, notice that this is a plural. This is not a singular statement. It's not just the October 25th statement. It's important to understand that there was a body of statements. Third, I look at the legal framework, current legal framework that I mentioned a moment ago. And then within that framework, I consider the viability. Of prosecution, and then finally, um, given what I will say is, I think, a, a very little likelihood of actual prosecution, I want to talk about some policy considerations that rise from that. Um, we've heard a lot of good um, information today about around its history and, and its development, um, starting as, uh, for, from its dynastic history, uh, Muslim conquest, and then we've heard about the, the period of, of, of the Shahs, um, leading, of course. To the Islamic Revolution, which is where our point of focus really begins. Ahmadinejad, of course, is really a product of that Islamic Revolution. Um, he himself has been a devout Muslim from youth. Um, his name was originally Suborgian, uh, but was changed to Ahmadinejad, which means uh, of the, the the faith of of Muhammad, I, I think, or, or or something along those lines. I, I don't speak Farsi, but. Um, Within his name, there is uh, already a strong link to Islam. Um, and he became, of course, a, a committed Islamic revolutionary activist. Um, and some believe, uh, it has not been proved conclusively, of course, that he might have actually been one of those involved in the taking of hostages um, when uh, the Americans were taken in uh, 1979. Um, he was, despite that, uh, relatively unknown. In Iranian politics until he became mayor of Tehran. Um, he began to institute uh, fairly extremist policies as mayor of Tehran, um, and then he was a surprise uh, victor in the uh, race for president of Iran in 2005. And that is, of course, when he was catapulted into world prominence, especially once he delivered his infamous remarks on October 25th. Um, From the beginning, he started spouting uh, extremist rhetoric. Uh, This is just an example. Thanks to the blood of the martyrs, a new Islamic revolution has arisen that will cut off the roots of injustice in the the world. So this notion of someone who is messianic or sees himself as messianic and sees his administration as a chance to usher in a new era of of justice is, I think, important in understanding the context of the presidency of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Of course, another one of the prominent features of his presidency has been the support of terrorist groups aiming to destroy Israel. Um, Hezbollah has been uh, perhaps the uh, most infamous of these relationships, especially in relation to its 2006 attack in summer uh, against Israel. Um, But there's also been support of Hamas and Islamic Jihad. In fact, um, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice has referred to Iran as a central banker of terrorism in the world. As Professor Kotler pointed out last night, there have been missile, there have been parades where there have been missiles that have been draped in um, banners. I, I'm not uh, actually um, tr- uh, purporting to to show specifically one of those banners, and because I don't read the language, I don't know. But I just this is an example of of something that came by in a parade after showing it as a a visual, so I make that qualification. But there have been um, accounts of these missiles draped, and there are photographs, I just don't have in this PowerPoint presentation, saying the equivalent of death to Israel. Um, So where there may be some dispute about Ahmadinejad's statements, especially his October 25th statement about wiping Israel off the map, this sort of image is extremely valuable, I think, in understanding the mindset, especially when we talk about the intent, which we will when, when we talk about genocide, of Ahmadinejad in making these statements. The other thing that we need to keep in mind to put all this into context is that Iran, of course, is trying to develop a nuclear capacity. And while this may seem dire to some, certain experts believe that Iran could be capable of building nuclear weapons as early as 2009, um, there has, of course, been the national intelligence estimate which has called this into question. Um, I will say, however, that if you look at the literature that's come out since the national intelligence estimate, it's not so clear that the national intelligence estimate got it right. That, in fact, it looks like Iran has uh, developed what it needs uh, to uh, create nuclear weapons, especially the fissile material that's necessary for that. Um, it's much easier to create uh, or develop a warhead um, than it is to, to have fissile material, and apparently they are continuing to develop the fissile material. Um, and it, it does seem odd, and I think people can maybe disagree about this, but it does seem odd that Iran is so desperate to have nuclear energy for civilian purposes only. Um, it just seems like there, there could be other, other energy sources. Uh, the fact that it's clandestine, Uh, The fact that the the, the missiles have been paraded and have been developed, those Shahab-3 missiles which are capable of hitting Tel Aviv that Iran possesses, makes us think that perhaps its motives in developing uh, nuclear are are less than peaceful. Um, There have, of course, been the two Security Council resolutions, um, 1737 of December 2006 and 1747 of March 2007, which have called on Iran Uh, to end its nuclear program, and Iran has thumbed its nose at those. And there was talk of another uh, resolution uh, coming out uh, soon. Now, against this ominous backdrop, Ahmadinejad has made a number of incendiary statements related to Israel, and I have broken them down by category. Uh, The most serious, of course, are the calls for destruction. Um, Those are fairly direct but there are more indirect uh, statements that have been made which in my opinion also uh, can be classified as part of the incitement to genocide predictions of Israel's destruction being one of them dehumanization of Israeli Jews Uh, accusing Israel of perpetrating mass murder condoning past violence against Israel advocating expulsion of Israeli Jews from the Middle East Um, and of course, uh, a topic that we've talked about at great length today, Holocaust denial. Let's just take quickly a look at each kind of statement. Uh, in addition to two, the 2005, the October 25, 2005 wipe-off map speech, he has stated that the Zionist regime cannot survive and cannot continue its existence. On August 4, 2006, during the Israel-Hezbollah military conflict, he stated that the real cure for the Lebanon conflict is elimination of the Zionist regime. In February 2008, so quite recently, he told Lamont that, quote, these false people, Israeli Jews, these fabricated people cannot continue to exist. He has also made predictions of destruction. And I would submit, there's been a recent paper put out by Susan Banish at Georgetown, that these different categories are part of incitement to genocide. You don't just have to say, kill the Israelis, you can say other things that indicate that that's what you want. Predicting that they should be destroyed, for example, is one of them. On April 14, 2006, uh, for example, he stated the Zionist regime is heading toward annihilation and elimination. As recently as January 2008, uh, he indicated to a television audience that Israel was doomed. And by the way, these are just a sample. There are many others, um, and I make reference to them in my paper. He is also Uh, dehumanized Israeli Jews. Uh, On August 1st, 2006, he stated, quote, they are like cattle, they more misguided, a bunch of bloodthirsty barbarians. Next to them, all the criminals of the world seem righteous. And again, in February 2008, he variously described Israel to supporters at a rally as a, quote, filthy bacteria, a wild beast, and scarecrow. Especially when, when you hear things like filthy bacteria, it, it seems to harken back to Nazi propaganda against the Jews um, in the 1930s. He has also accused Jews, this is another technique of incitement uh, called accusation in a mirror, where you accuse the, the people that you are, are trying to attack of the very thing that you want to do to them, and it's a lot. Um, in December uh, 2005, He noted that Israeli Jews have been allowing themselves to kill the Palestinian people, for example. And on October 5th, 2007, uh, he noted that Israel is committing genocide against the Palestinians. He has condoned past violence against Israel in October 2005, telling an audience that there is no doubt that the new wave of attacks in Palestine will erase the stain of Israel from the face of Islam. And he's even gone so far as to threaten supporters of Israel saying again in October 2005, anybody who recognizes Israel will burn in the fire of the Islamic nation's fury. He has called for expulsion of Israeli Jews from Israel. Um, In December 14, 2005, he asked that Israeli Jews be removed to Europe, the United States, Canada, or Alaska. He repeated a similar call in October 2007, uh, urging that Israeli Jews be removed to Alaska. And of course, there is the Holocaust denial, um, and most prominently sponsoring and speaking at the December 2006 conference uh, review of the Holocaust Global Vision, where David Duke, the Ku Klux Klan <clears throat> member, attended, as, as did Robert Faurisson, uh, the prominent uh, Holocaust denier. I told somebody I had one cartoon in this presentation, and this is it. Obviously, incitement of genocide is not a very, uh, you know, laughable subject. But you know, we have to have a little bit of levity in here. So, what what kind of crimes are we talking about here um, if we look at these statements? What we can consider is, first of all, direct and public incitement to commit genocide. And the source of this crime is the Genocide Convention of 1948, um, in particular, Article Three. The Article Two actually sets out the definition of genocide, and I'll talk about that in a moment, um, which is a series of acts um, uh, committed with the intent to destroy a whole or, in part, an ethnic, racial, religious group as such, um, national as well. Um, But then the tradition of the Genocide Convention, of course, has been carried down into the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, um, which essentially takes Articles 2 and 3 of the Genocide Convention and places them into Articles 6 and 25 and then what are called universal jurisdiction statutes, which are domestic uh, legislation, um, which allows uh, any municipal court to prosecute, for example, genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, what we call use Kogan's crimes. That's that's the other way we can we can look at it. The other crime that we can look at, of course, is crimes against humanity, and in particular persecution. There are a number of crimes against humanity. Um, Persecution is the one that applies best to Ahmadinejad's speeches. Um, And again, we look at the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, Article 7H, and Universal Jurisdiction Statutes. There is no convention, there is no treaty for crimes against humanity, and that's one of the sad realities of uh, the post-World War II uh, era. More specifically, we get guidance on how to interpret these sources from the Rwandan incitement cases. Professor Kotler mentioned them um, last night. Uh, Akiesu, Jean-Paul Achillesu was the first. He was the Bukmesque, um in Cava, which is a, a small town in Belgium. It's not so much that his case was significant in terms of how many were killed. Certainly thousands were in and around that area. He had his hand in a lot of it. Um, he was just a mayor. Um, it's the fact that it was the first case. It was the first case that was uh, tried and brought to a judgment in the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, and so it was the first case of genocide that was adjudicated since the Genocide Convention. And so it set an important precedent and gave us a lot of the important elements. Uh, as Professor Kotler mentioned, uh, it gave us a sense of what is public. When we talk about direct and public incitement to genocide, um, what is direct? Um, and um, There, we understand that direct deals with the context, the cultural and linguistic context of the place and time that the statement was made. Kambanda, uh, Jean Kambanda was the Prime Minister, and he spoke in metaphors. Uh, For example, as we heard last night, drinking dogs' blood, um, uh, allowing the uh, Hutus to have their their blood drunk like dogs uh, without retaliating. That was a call to incitement. Uh, as found by the tribunal. Uh, It also uh, let us know that a state leader, because he was the Prime Minister and he was the first head of government to be found guilty of genocide. Uh, Rougiou, Georges Rougiou, I was a prosecutor at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda and I actually drafted that indictment, or at least I I helped draft it. Um, He was the only non-black African, he was a European, a Belgian, uh, who got on uh, the radio, Radio Television Libre de the famous RTLM, and incited to genocide? He too used euphemisms, such as finishing off the revolution of 1959, which was a reference to a time when there were massive ethnic massacres against Tutsis by Hutu in the, 19, in the late 1950s. And then, of course, the famous media case, um, which is the prosecutor versus Nahimana, Barre and Ngezi. Um, these are three media executives. Um, Nahimana and Baray Guiza were the founders of RTLM. Gazi was the editor in chief of Kangura, the newspaper, the chief newspaper that was calling for the extermination of Tutsis around the time of the Rwanda genocide. Um, that case gave us a very good indication of what constitutes illegal incitement versus what constitutes legitimate speech. Um, and then uh, Mugasera was the Canadian case. Uh, Leon Mubisera gave an infamous speech in November of 1993 in which essentially he told Tutsis that they need to be sent back to their homeland of Ethiopia uh, via the Nyabarango River, which is a non-navigable river that was traditionally used to dispose of corpses after large-scale ethnic massacres. The first issue that we have to consider here is whether or not Ahmadinejad has general genocidal intent. and As I mentioned, genocide consists of certain harmful acts, killing, causing serious bodily and mental harm, inflicting on the group conditions calculated to bring about its physical destruction, for example, committed with the, the, the intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a, a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group as such. Okay, That's our basic definition of genocide. There is an issue that comes up on the general intent part of it, which is, does Ahmadinejad have intent to kill Jews when 25, or approximately 25,000 uh, Jews live in his country and he has not targeted them for destruction, per se? Um, I would argue that he is, um, he does have intent to commit genocide, even though he may not want to kill every single Jew that exists in the world. If he wants to kill Israeli Jews, if he wants to destroy Israeli Jews, that that is enough. Uh, we learned from the International Criminal Tribunal of Yugoslavia's jurisprudence uh, coming out of the Srebrenica cases that there are only a certain number of Muslims were targeted for murder. Intent to destroy a group within any specific area, in that case, that enclave around Srebrenica, uh, is enough, is sufficient to establish genocidal intent, even though it's not all of the Bosnian Muslims. The same would apply to Israeli Jews. And then, beyond the general intent issue, there are the elements of incitement. And as I mentioned, we get those from the Akeyezu and the Nahimana cases. It has to be direct. um, Of course, it has to be public. Uh, But when we talk about direct, again, it has to be viewed in light of its cultural and linguistic content. The question we need to ask is, did the people for whom the message was delivered, or for whom it was intended, uh, immediately grasp the implications thereof? And then of course, as I say, the Namimana case was so helpful in fleshing out the content of the speech, whether it was permissible speech or whether it had corroded into criminal incitement. And to do that, we look at its purpose, its text, its context, um, and there's a relation really between I think context and whether or not it's direct. And the relationship between the speaker and subject, with the speaker and the audience. Um, and uh, then we look at mens um, rea and causation. And again, the general genocidal general intent will inform to large, a large extent what we think about whether or not there is incitement. Um, again, the direct element, in light of its cultural linguistic content, did the person for whom the message was intended immediately grasp the implication thereof? And there are some issues that come up when we look at, the, at directness. First of all, if we just look at the wipe-off-the-map speech, now I, I mentioned that I didn't think the wipe-off-the-map map speech in and of itself is enough to, to be the basis for prosecution of incitement to genocide. That said, I look at it as an extremely important anchor around which the other statements can be placed, and which, as an ensemble, can be the basis of incitement charges. So we do have to ask ourselves some serious questions about that speech. First of all, do we have a good translation of the Farsi? And there's been a lot of controversy about exactly what was said in Farsi. For example, did Ahmadinejad talk about uh, a map, wiping Israel off the map, or eliminating it from the pages of time? We heard reference uh, to the Imam, you know, as the Imam said. Uh, what, what is that? What is the significance of that? Um, did he talk about it being wiped off or did he talk about it collapsing? Was he talking about the regime, the, the, the specific government of Israel, or was he talking about the people of Israel? And there has been, a, uh, uh, there's been an analogy made to Khrushchev's famous we will bury you speech. Uh, which was delivered at the height of the Cold War. Um, And if you look at Khrushchev's comments, he made them in the context of other statements, and they seem a little more innocuous, uh, but they were used for propaganda purposes to make it seem as though the Soviet Union was, you know, would be attacking us imminently. There are responses to these issues. First of all, it's interesting to note that all official Iranian translations refer to wiping Israel away. And there are linguists, as I point out in my paper, who subscribe to that view as well. Um, Iranian experts, uh, there are certainly many of them who believe that map is actually a more accurate translation than the pages of time. Um, and whether or not Ahmadinejad is talking about the regime or the entire country and its people, um, he does refer to it often as an occupying regime, and there is certainly a level of hatred that seems to indicate that he's referring uh, to the people and not just the government. Um, The other thing is we have to consider the statement within the larger context of the other statements that were made. Again, it's not like the statement was made in isolation. If we look at the other statements, there's reason to believe that he would say that Israel should be wiped off the map. And of course there are numerous other statements by Ahmadinejad that are not subject to translation controversies. So there's a lot, I think, that a prosecutor could hang her hat on in prosecuting Ahmadinejad. Another directness issue is um, the fact that in the Rwandan cases, statements made in the context of violence against the target group were a prominent feature of the cases. Without the contextual violence, perhaps you don't have the directness, and that's an argument that I've heard made. Um, but my counter would be is that you have had a context of violence by proxy, because Iran has used terrorists to do a lot of its dirty work for it and has attacked civilians um, through uh, Hezbollah, Hamas, and Islamic Jihad. Another directness issue is, what is the target of the incitement? And I mentioned this a moment ago, is it the Zionist government, not Israelis themselves? And I think in addition to what I said about the October 25th statement in and of itself, if we look at the whole body of statements, um, I think that we can conclude that they're actually anti-Semitic, they are not just about the government. Uh, first of all, I would submit that anti-Zionism is a proxy for anti-Semitism, and in my paper uh, I have, a, a, I think, a fairly compelling quote from Yehuda Bauer uh, about that and some other experts. Um, secondly, I think if you look at the Holocaust denial, that that's of a piece with the hatred that goes towards the Jewish people. Um, for the reasons, I think, that that Meyer pointed out. And then I would point to a a very insightful statement by Professor William who who is perhaps the foremost expert on genocide in the world, that, quote, the history of genocide shows that those who incite the crime speak in euphemisms. And I would submit that Ahmadinejad can't have it both ways. He can't pretend like he's just a court jester making ridiculous statements that nobody is going to take seriously. He is making these statements in a context that suggests that he is serious about what he's doing. And he's not going to be able to hide behind that court persona. The other uh, issue is, who is the the audience for his insight? What is the intended audience? Is it Iranians? Okay? If it is, then our analysis has to shift to, to a certain extent. Is it Islamists, Islamic extremists, or is it Muslims in general? To understand whether it is immediately grasped, whether his message or the significance of it is immediately grasped, we need to know who the audience is. And that's something that would have to be worked out if this case were ever brought to trial. Um, This would be certainly a a trial issue. What about the other thing is, what is the incitement urging um, listeners to do? An argument would go, assuming the statements are directed at Iranians, Why would Ahmadinejad have to incite when he and or the ruling elite in Iran would themselves control the use of nuclear weapons, would themselves push the nuclear button? And I think the counter to this is that Iranians have expressed dissent against Ahmadinejad's policies. There was a big protest last summer, for example, Um, and I think what he's trying to do, I think an argument could be made, is he's trying to generate consent for a policy that will clearly result in mass murder if nuclear weapons were were used and would likely lead to a war that Iranians would have to fight. And I think he's trying to create an environment of hatred toward Israel and Israeli Jews that would allow there to be consensus. The other thing is that we're, we're now just talking about killing, we're talking about destruction. The other aspect of this is he has called for the forced expulsion of Israeli Jews from the Middle East. And we could argue that one of those acts that I referred to, um, advocating infliction of serious bodily and mental harm, that that is another uh, potential um, part of incitement to genocide. This is another, remember, there are a series of acts. Forced expulsion could be one of them. Um, It's not limited to murder. So There's another possibility for for arguing that he's committed incitement to genocide without getting into whether or not he wants to kill Israeli Jews, etc. The causation element um, is something that I think is going to be brought up in any potential prosecution of Ahmadinejad because there has never been an incitement case brought in the absence of an actual genocide. But it's important to note that the jurisprudence says it's not required. It is not required. This is an inchoate crime. The crime is committed when the, or when the words are uttered in the proper context and with the elements that I mentioned earlier. The other crime that we can consider, of course, is crimes against humanity. Was Ahmadinejad's advocacy part of a widespread, this is in the legal, the legal jargon, a widespread and systematic attack directed against any civilian population made with knowledge of the attack? Professor Kotler made reference to the Stryker case from Nuremberg. That case, along with Brugieu, uh, who I mentioned a moment ago, that was the, the European-Belgian uh, radio announcer, Nantimana and Bugusera, the Canadian case, clearly indicate that it is not necessary to show resultant violence when it comes to crimes against humanity. The words themselves are persecution. That's the crime. Persecution. Deprivation of a fundamental right. There are a couple issues that come up, though, uh, with this uh, crime. Um, The first is is the link to terrorist attacks. If you're going to show that there were widespread and systematic attacks, it's going to have to be through the terrorist acts that were committed by proxy through Hezbollah, Hamas, Islamic Jihad. Um, But there is credible evidence that Ahmadinejad has financed and supported these groups that have attacked Israel. And it's interesting to note that some of his speeches advocating destruction of Israel were made during the summer 2006 attack on Israeli civilians by Hezbollah. So you can link those statements to the actual violence, and that makes a more compelling case for crimes against humanity. Um, I, I mentioned in here the Nicaragua case dealing with effective control. That would be an issue. How much control did Iran have? That would be a trial issue. Um, but realize that the ICTY case of Prosecutor versus Tadic supported a, a, a test of lesser control than Nicaragua versus United States, which is from the International Court of Justice. The other thing that I think people are going to point out is that there's this decision from the ICTY, the Portage decision, um, which states that there sh- which indicates that there does need to be uh, resulting violence if there's going to be a, a successful charge of persecution. Um, I would note that it, does, it inaccurately cites the Stryker case. It ignores Rougeux, which had come out and uh, from the ICTR and said the opposite. And if you read it, it's not particularly well reasoned. The friction decision from Nuremberg: Fritsch, who was the head of radio um, under Goebbels' propaganda ministry, he was acquitted. And I, uh, I'm actually planning to write an article about that case. But that was at odds with the Stryker and the Otto Dietrich case. Dietrich was in the propaganda ministry as well, and he was convicted in subsequent Nuremberg trials. And that is also a poorly reasoned decision. Finally, this issue of free speech. Um, What if crimes against humanity charge uh, impermissibly infringe on on free speech rights? Uh, The U.S. First Amendment, of course, has the Brandenburg standard, um, which will, the First Amendment will not protect speech that is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to produce such such action. Um, We do have a more attenuated nexus between violence against civilians and hate speech here, but it's arguable that even under the Brandenburg standard, uh, there would still be a valid claim. Remember, we are not in the United States, and so there is a much looser international standard. Finally, there have been suggested jurisdictions for uh, where Ahmadinejad can be prosecuted. The International Court of Justice, uh, could take the case pursuant to Article 9 of the Genocide Commission, which is the so-called Compromissory Clause. Um, but remember that, well, I think I'm, I'm going to talk about this in a moment, let's see if I yeah. um, there, there, there is a, I'm going to say there's a problem with that. We could also, under the Universal Jurisdiction Statutes, possibly prosecute him in municipal courts. And then, of course, the International Criminal Court could take him pursuant to a Security Council referral, because Iran is not a member of the ICC. So Article 13 of the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court would be the only avenue through which he could be prosecuted by the ICC. With respect to ICJ jurisdiction, there are all kinds of potential problems. Iran is not likely to consent, and consent would be necessary. It's already thumbing its nose at the Security Council resolutions related to its nuclear program. It would take years for a decision, if you look at ICJ cases, they take forever to be litigated. And for all we know, Israel could be blown up by then. Um, and it, it deals with the liability of the state, not the individual. And the trend has been toward individual criminal responsibility. Municipal court jurisdiction um, under the Universal Jurisdiction Statute is not likely because, frankly, I don't think we're going to find any countries that will be willing to prosecute. Um, and even if they were, it would be hard to get Ahmadinejad, and there would be claims of sovereign immunity. Um, They would cite to the Congo versus Belgium case of 2002 um, where under domestic jurisdiction it would be difficult to get around sovereign immunity. Not true in the International Criminal Court. And so that leaves us with the International Criminal Court. Again, a Security Council resolution pursuant to Article 13 would be the only way to do it, but it would show that there is a, a world consensus through the Security Council, or at least a broad international consensus, Uh, and the the position taken on Iran's nuclear program is already somewhat indicative of that. If Iran continues its shenanigans, if it continues to finance terrorism, if it continues to thumb its nose, and if it continues to play chicken the way it has, who knows? It's not likely, but um, that's the only way it could go. Because it's unlikely, my conclusion (coughs) is that we need to focus not on the reality of incitement the way it has already been prosecuted, but on the way it should be prosecuted, which is as a deterrence mechanism. That's what I argue in my paper. That's what I say is the key to making sure that we don't have genocides again, because if you look at genocide, it is always preceded by hate speech. And I will conclude, just give me one last bit of low light so they can see my last quote. With the quote of Hitler expert, Ron Rosenbaum. It has never happened before this kind of preemptive indictment, but that doesn't mean it can't happen now or that it shouldn't happen now or that the international law making incitement a separate crime should be applied to Ahmadinejad and his genocidal incitement against the Jewish state. Considering the hideous historical record of failure in the past to prevent genocide, failure to pursue this course would itself be a crime. So, thank you for your time.
2: For a few minutes, and then uh, Professor Manesh. Yeah, I appreciate very much your your comments, and uh, it's extremely interesting. But I wonder whether the fact that he has not um, gone after the Jews in Iran whether that doesn't actually show us something very significant, which is that it is not ethnic it's not even religious and I wonder whether at the root of the attack on Israel and the Israeli Jews isn't a larger global a geopolitical struggle going on between Iran and Saudi Arabia in fact in that struggle Israel stands in the way in fact Israel stands in the way between Syria and Jordan and if you get rid of Israel Then you get
3: rid of the only stabilizing state in the Middle East and I'm just
2: wondering whether there is not another uh, approach to this which puts it in a larger context so that simply um, eliminating Ahmadinejad does not in fact
1: eliminate the problem. From the to the I have two observations. First of all, I think you very well be right, but you have to remember I'm focusing on criminal prosecution. Um, the question is could, could a case be made out and could we prove genocidal intent um, with respect to the laws? And my argument is that if you are advocating for removal of Israeli Jews from the Middle East, that whether or not you attack the Jews who are living under a dictatorship, if you will, within Iran, um, and are not being targeted for destruction currently, um, that that shows that there's not genocidal intent, I would I would say to you that the, the Bosnian cases prove otherwise. The targeting of the uh, Bosnian Muslims in Srebrenica was only a limited part of the group, and yet that was found to be sufficient for geno- proving genocidal intent. So. I take that as far as it goes for purposes of criminal prosecution. As far as whether there are greater implications, geopolitical considerations that deal deal with Ahmadinejad's reasons for wanting to get rid of Israel, you may be right. But I do think that there's that there's some anti-Semitism in there. Um, if he felt warm and fuzzy about about Israeli Jews, I don't know that he would be so uh, concerned about you know whether or not he was having a struggle with. Saudi Arabia and that the, that the Israelis were a problem in that regard. So I think it's complex. Uh, Mayor? I have two questions.
3: Uh, can you prosecute the head of state of being, for being responsible for what other people in his state, let's the official media which he controls, make? That is, because I mean, you can find not only Ahmadinejad's face, state but segments in the radio or TV which advocate the destruction of Israel or go much further than what Ahmadinejad said. So, Penny said he's responsible for it, even though he himself did not it. This is one question. Secondly, or comment about the question of anti Zionism and anti Semitism, I think there is ample evidence to show that anti Zionism is also very much interlinked, or anti anti Semitism, just give you a few examples.
1: Um, Remember, I agree with you. No, 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 just
3: to answer the point, point. I mean, not only that the Holocaust denial, but the Holocaust as a Zion which is officially an anti-Semitic document long before Zionism, I mean, before Zionism existed, is used to explain, an anti-Jewish document is used to explain Israel, and vice versa. Or, to give you another example, Durand Ayatollah Muhammad Ali two years ago explained that when the Prophet Muhammad destroyed and massacred the Jewish tribe of Banu Qurayza in the 7th century, century, he destroyed a major Zionist base. Right. So, at that time, there was no distinction, supposedly, between Zionists and Jews. They were the same. You can have it's also the same thing with Ahmadinejad and many others.
1: I point out in my article that, for example, on U.S. campuses, that there has been a demonstration of anti-Zionism uh, on, on campuses here in the United States that has been found to be the equivalent of anti-Semitism. I mean, you can, that argument is, I think, fairly solid. Um, uh, and and I, again, along with the Holocaust denial, which you're very aware of, um, your second question is, I think, uh, an issue of what I would call superior responsibility. Um, that's another international criminal law doctrine that I've dealt with elsewhere, not in this paper. But possibly, if you could show that he was responsible for controlling the media, if you could make out a case of command respons- or superior responsibility, then yes, you might be able to show a lot of liability um, and that's what we found in the executive cases, the non-imano, the media case, there was found to be superior responsibility. Those guys were just, they set up the radio, and they were in charge of it, but the announcers were the ones who were making the statements. So, so that's possible. And I think, going back to your question, you say, there are others. Um, you know, why Ahmadinejad himself? I think Ahmadinejad has been extremely prominent and has made a lot of statements. And he's, he's the head, he's the titular head of, of the Iranian government. So I think this idea of the culture of impunity that I mentioned at the beginning—we have got to fight against that. We have got to root it out. There is no place for that in, in society. And I think prosecuting Ahmadinejad would send a, a very strong statement to the world in that regard. We have a lot of questions, so please very brief questions. Uh,
4: two points. Uh, first uh, question, question. Yeah, question. I got a question. Uh, he refers to regime and very important, it doesn't, it, it, the word right. regime comes all the time. Right. Not all the time, not all the time, but in, <laughs> in relation to Zionism, in relation to, uh, to Lots of time. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, the reason I say this is because I, the way they, they talk, I know they, in detail, in terms of how they see Israel, uh, uh, I know it, the Persian and I know how it works. Right. Uh, the Two things, okay. One, there is no there is no secret that this Islamic Republic wants Israel but of the know, disappear, right. As simple as it is. But their position on Arab Israeli conflict is very important, a one-estate solution and a referendum. Which means they do accept the existence of the, of the Jews in the land, except that they don't accept a state for the Jewish people versus the state for others. Just one. official position of the Islamic Republic is, is a one state. The question I have is a little different. Is it possible that Ahmadinejad is making this propaganda to redirect attention from his attempt to get closer to the Bush administration? And the reason I say this is because Ahmadinejad, from the moment he has come to power, since now, has
1: tried everything in his power to come closer to that's the. An interesting question. So, yeah. Okay, I I think that is it possible. I, I think that yeah. that's that's why it's important to look at the at the larger context. I mean, he might have he might have some mixed motives, but I think he has enough. He's shown enough uh, of a motive, uh, if you will. I mean, I, I should speak more strictly in legal terms. He's shown enough of his intent. I think uh to, to be serious about genocide that and especially in the connection of the violence that comes with the terrorism and the sponsorship of ter- terrorism. I think that undercuts a lot of, of simply just saying, well it's the official policy that, that this is the way it should be when behind closed doors and under uh, you know cover of darkness uh, there is money and there is support and there is training being given to terrorist organizations that are attacking Israeli civilians. It doesn't it doesn't cut. Yes? Yeah. No.
4: Yeah, um, I have uh, two questions, one, uh, in, in light of the Iranian constitution which uh, makes the judicial, executive and legislative powers uh, under, the control, put under the control of the spiritual leader, um, would Ahmadinejad be able to get away from his responsibility of, on the media and his control of the media? The second question is um, Ahmadinejad, being a true disciple of uh, Ayatollah Khomeini and presenting himself as such, would the discourses and the hate speeches of Ayatollah Khomeini be useful as a precedent or as you know leading to this?
1: I yeah, I do and I do talk about uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini somewhat in my paper so I mean I do think it helps put things in context. Uh, the statements of Rafsanjani, um, even Hatem, uh indicate the kind, of the depth of the hatred of Israel. I mean, this, there's a whole context, there's a whole poisonous environment that exists here. Um, your question, I think, is also related to uh, command responsibility or superior responsibility, and uh, as well as the, the so-called defense of following orders. You know, possibly you could say, well, he's just uh, listening to to Khamenei, telling him what to do and therefore he might assert the defense of fallen orders, that is not recognized in international law. Um, and possibly, Khamenei could have liability, but that would have to be proved, and that would be an entirely different subject. Okay,
0: so we have, we have three minutes, I'm going to take three, collect three questions, so one, deal and then Professor Gordon, yes. uh, if you set
2: aside your prosecutorial hat, and if you were the defense attorney, what would uh, be the major <laughs> defense that you had on this case? All those issues I
0: raised. I mean, all those, We're going to collect the question, and so then you can answer it, please. Okay. My, my question has to do with the um, um, some good consequences and some bad consequences. Good consequences seem to me that you could be indicting a lot of guys across the Middle East along similar lines, including Nasrallah and Hamas and, and probably dozens, maybe hundreds of others. But the bad consequences might be that it could be extended... This same principle, of this sort of prosecution, could then be extended with people indicting the United States and indicting everybody. OK, got it. And the last one. gone beyond Israeli Jews and spoken about Jews in general when he refers to Jews as bacteria. So why are we
1: uh, splitting hairs here about Israeli Jews? He's gone to Jews in general. OK, I'll take one at a time. As for the defenses? I would, I would say the points that I brought up are the ones, if I were representing them, that I would bring up uh, at trial. You know, it's not clear who the audience is. You could make the argument that it would not be immediately grasped uh, if it were not Iranians, for example, because he's speaking in Farsi. I mean, there are a lot of things that you could say in that regard. Uh, you could you could try to show that the links between the terrorism and Ahmadinejad are not that great. I mean, there are a lot of things. Remember, reasonable doubt is the standard. All you have to do is raise a reasonable doubt. It's the highest uh, level of Proof that a prosecutor uh, has, or that anybody has in the law. So, I I'm not saying it's an airtight case. I'm saying it's, it's possible, and it seems to me that there's probable cause, but as a defense attorney, I, I think I could, I could certainly have a credible show in court. Uh, as to the other uh, persons in the Middle East who are doing this sort of thing, um, yeah, I suppose, but you have to realize that every prosecutor has has to make decisions regarding resources. There are lots of things that you could do. Uh, When I was with the Department of Justice prosecuting crimes domestically, we had certain initiatives. What we look at is deterrence value. And deterrence value is largely what drives your decisions that you make as a prosecutor. So I would say, given the context, and given who Akandinejad is, and the virulence of his comments, the great deterrence value that there would be, would justify that choice. The third question is related to, uh, he's talked to Jew- about Jews as bacteria, uh, why are we splitting hairs? Um, actually, I think those comments were made about Israel. When he talked about it being a bacterium, he's talking about Israel. He's not talking about necessarily Jews specifically. So that's why I'm saying he could maybe get around and say, well, that's not, I, I was talking about the regime. I was saying that the Zionist occupation re- regime was like that. That said, There have been occasions when he's made comments that indicate that he specifically hates Jews, and I think the Holocaust denial is certainly corroborative of that. So um, that's a point well taken. So thank you very much.
0: Okay. So David Menashri will give the final uh, keynote uh, talk, and I just want to say it was really an honor. to work with uh, monastery and his colleagues from the Center of Iranian Studies at Tel Aviv University without his input, this whole event would never take place. So we're grateful for that. Uh,
5: thank you. Uh, <coughs> so after this uh, long uh, 24 hours, uh, I think it would not be even serious to try and sum up uh, or wrap up even the discussion. I can really promise you what Henry the aid, promised each of his uh, six wives, I won't keep you long. <laughs> uh, so, uh, <coughs> it's very briefly, a this point, this few points that I wanted to make. Iran is a complex country. Iran is a country that uh, really it's very difficult to comprehend and understand. I must admit, for the last 35 years, I'm working only on this issue of Iran, Iranian history, and foreign culture, Iranian society. And unfortunately, the more I study, the less I understand. They keep uh, surprising me. With all the new tendencies within society, the bottom line is there is no black and white. There are other other colors in between the black and white, and there are within the Iranian civil society, even within the administration, there are different tendencies. Not all people in Iran think alike, and not all the people of Iran speak alike. And we can see people, and I think that I personally, I think that. I have a lot of respect for civil society in Iran. There are positive things developing in Iran that are really very encouraging for the future. I would say that the country that has women as the Iranians have or youth and students as the Iranians have, has, this country has a bright future. The problem is not with the people of Iran, the problem is with the ideology and politics that are in control today in Iran and I think that is a source of... Concern primarily for the people of Iran. That's uh, Israel and the world aside, the main victims of this uh, policy of harshness are the people of Iran themselves. The revolution was actually changed our attitude and, and, and perspective of Iran. This was such a huge development that change our attitude. I can tell you in terms of Iranian studies or Middle Eastern studies, there was a revolution only on, also in Iranian studies. 30 years ago, before the revolution, in seminars and conferences on the Middle East, there was almost nothing about Iran. The entirely was devoted to the Arab world. Because, uh, and today, I was speaking with the people in the Samedi Studies Association, one quarter of all the Middle East experts listed in the MESA. Their the main field of study is Iran. Not Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Tem- all the Middle East. One quarter of working on in Iran. It's a visual way to look at it. You go to the library and see what are the books, how many books have been published about Iran in the 60s and 70s, and how many books in the 70s and 80s. How many papers in the journals of uh, Middle Eastern history, uh, society, have been devoted to Iran before? And how many now? But it's the problem this is not the problem. But the problem is that this also changed our attitude and focus on different aspects of Iranian life. Before the Islamic Revolution, you won't find many books dealing with Islam in Iran in the 60s and 70s. Most of the books were about modernization in Iran, migration in Iran, population in Iran, women in Iran, youth in Iran, students in Iran, the process of modernization, westernization, and change. After the Islamic Revolution, most of the books somehow deal with Islam, Shia and Islam. And to the agree that equating Khomeini's revolution with Shiism, with Islam, and I think that a more careful uh, attitude should be employed. Now, even if you, uh, having said that, uh, the revolution which somehow I think that makes it difficult to us to understand Iranian history helps us in different ways. Because after such a huge tsunami, after such a huge change in history, it's easy to look back and see what remained from the legacy of the monarchy, what remains solid after all this basic change, and what has been wiped out and changed and removed. And if you take <coughs> this perspective, you will see the many, <coughs> many developments that were the results of the policy of the monarchy, or the results of Westernization in Iran remained very solid. Let me do one. The most important thing is nationalism,
1: a Western concept
5: penetrated into the Middle East and into Iran late in the 19th century. It became such a profound and powerful aspiration and ideology in the Middle East, including Iran. In each and every case, almost. There was a clash between ideology of the revolution and the national interest of the state. Interest of the state won over ideology. They may be willing to pay higher price than you would think logical to preserve their ideological uh, purity, but on and on when there was a clash. It doesn't mean that the revolutionary movement wakes up in the morning and says, well, what can I do today against what I promised or against my ideology? Well, they wake up in the morning, they want to do exactly what they promised. When there is a clash between the interests. We see that interests win. Nationalism is one thing. Modern education, we spoke about education here. 150 years ago, there was a struggle, a cultural war in Iran against modern schooling system. When the Iranian Revolution came to power, they did not even entertain the idea of resolving the new schools and going back to the Makkah. They continued to teach uh, biology, physics, mathematics, and you know what? Even the language of the Great Saturn. It's so absurd that on textbooks of each English uh, book, there is also explanation. Why do we have to teach our children English? the fact that they had to explain it on the cover of each book or at least it used to be in the early 80's it's very meaningful. Well they had their explanation, we need to export our ideology, so we need foreign languages, we need to fight with imperialism, so we need technology and therefore we need foreign languages. The Islamic regime has never been against western technology. Western technology was a great service for Iranian revolutions. The telegraph line serve the interests of the late 19th century movement, the early 20th century movement. As much as the video, uh, as the tape cassettes served a Khomeini, as much as I believe that the next in the Middle East would be uh, supported by the Internet. All these issues that somehow that we discussed, but can you bring technology without culture? Can you isolate or separate culture from technology. The Iranians have tried to do it for a long time. And I think they failed again and again because big technology somehow penetrates also uh, uh, culture. In the morning today we heard about uh, basically different attitudes the question of democracy. And I think that uh, the fact that Iran has elections should not be taken as a sign of democracy. In a way, Iranians have gone to the polls and voted in, uh, in elections more than any other nations in contemporary history. On average, Iranians go to general elections once a year. Eight times to parliament, nine times to presidency, four times to uh, ex- council of
3: experts, uh, three times to municipalities. I think we came to 29 years of the Islamic revolution without even discussing
5: the run of uh, uh, elections. Well, is it a sign of democracy? But I think not, because the system is being controlled by the non elected bodies of government, which again we heard this morning how much power they have in Iranian society. And here is the concept of e faqih. Many people speak if there is be a change under President Bush. This is not the question. The question is if can be a change under the present administration, not in Washington, but in Tehran. As long as Khamenei is in power, when having so much power in hand, no one can really challenge it. On the top of it, let's not fool ourselves. The Iranian regime is made up with smart, ensured people. As you can imagine, uh, in the community, was a banner on the wall, translated from Hebrew, the Bible says, <laughs> you should conduct your wars I think these benefits have been removed to Tehran or to Rome. <laughs> the other night I was speaking in New York in the opening of this session and I said that there are two main games that are very popular in and associated with Iran. Uh, chase and backgammon. I think that the Iranians are playing with the word Chase planning their steps ahead of time, few phases ahead, while the West is playing background, throwing the dices, and claiming that everything will be okay. This was not supposed to be like that. It is time that the West will have a policy, a calculated policy, to tackle with the challenge of Iran. The conservatives are in power, no matter how many nice women and freedom fighters we have in Iran, At the end of the day, people who decide on issues of national security are not the reformists, certainly not when they are in jail. The one who will push the button, they are the conservatives. For for eight years, Iran had a a reformist, a pro-reform president, Atavid. At least for four years, they had majority in parliament from 2000 to 2004, reformists. A combination of parliament and the president could not do anything significant, even on the issue of attitude towards the United States, not to speak about attitude to Israel. What is the secret of the power of the conservatives? First, they speak in the name of God. Now, it's wonderful to wake up in the morning and tell the people what God exactly wants. We have some of them in Jerusalem, we have them in other places. There is a the group of people that claim. A direct link to the wisdom of God, and it's very influential in conservative society. Then they have the army. If God is not enough, God forbid, it should be enough. But if it's not enough, you still have the Revolutionary guard and the army and the intelligence. And then you have the will to fight for your power. The mentor of Ayatollah uh, of, sorry, and the mentor of President Ahmadinejad Ayatollah Mestakh mm-hmm. Yazdi made it very clear when there were students rioting in Iran in July 99 or on the final sermon he said a sentence that I think that whoever respects Islam should be really scared of such mm-hmm. sentences. He say that whoever thinks that Islam is a religion of mercy does not understand Islam at all. Islam orders us to take a sharp a sword and cut the heads of the people who are against us. This is the mentor or supposed to be the mentor of Ayatollah, uh, of, of President
3: We spoke a lot
5: about anti-Semitism and uh, the challenges to Israel and to Western civilization. And honestly, for me, really it really doesn't. I don't go to this question. It's wiped right out of the, of the page of history. The context is clear. The subject is clear. The ideology of Imam Khomeini is clear. And the slogan of the Islamic Revolution, Israel should be eliminated and destroyed. Israel, by our good God, asked a friend of mine, Iranian, why do you have to say that Israel should be eliminated and destroyed? After you eliminated Israel, what is the meant to be destroyed? Just to make sure that it's dead and buried, you know, that they won't come back anytime. So there's no question about it. And it's really this warning of if you use A, B, or C, would not make a and the, the distinction between Jews, Zionists, and Israelis, honestly, I can't really, as an Israeli, as a Jew, as a Zionist, I don't see how one, can, how an Iranian common person in the streets would be able to distinguish, what wow, he is a Jew, but this is a Zionist. They call all American Jews Zionists. So if they are Zionists, why do the Iranian Jews are not Zionists? And all of them are Zionists, because they pray. To go back to Zion, the are Zionists. When they executed, the first civilian Iranians executed in 19, 1979, uh, Habib al Kadayan, the head, former head of the Iranian community, was executed because of many things. But the headline was, A Jewish there Has Been Executed. My friend, uh, Dr. Blitzhak, mentioned all, all these talks about the Zionists of the era of the Prophet Muhammad. Well, the Zionists at that time.
1: Unfortunately, there was no
5: such ideology at that. time, but they continue with this. I think that if Israel did not exist, Ahmadinejad should have founded the state of Israel. Because we serve an interest for the radical Islamist in power. Ideologically, they are against us, but for pragmatic reasons, they don't have reason to change and this hatred to the United States and Israel remain the main issues on the ideology of the Islamic Revolution. So why not continue and benefit? Unfortunately for this wonderful city, Jerusalem, whoever wants to be leader in the Muslim world would raise the flag of Jerusalem. I remember the days of the early 80s when Saddam Hussein invaded Iran. His army was marching the opposite direction and Saddam used to say that the way to Jerusalem goes to Tehran.
4: But look at the map. The
5: man was going elsewhere. <laughs> but this issue is the symbol of Jerusalem is unifying people behind you in the name of the struggle for the Islamic or Jewish or anti-Jewish cause. Let me f- end with the following, uh, one, one major point. I'm a great believer in the people of God. My main uh, area of studies in Iranian history was about education and the young people of Iran. Iran can certainly be proud of the young people that it has. In the educational system is better than most of the countries in the Middle East. Women organizations are the most active. Cinema industry is one of those are particularly scenes the most extensive in the Middle East. There are many other things that are positive. The problem, is people. the problem is the, 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 the ideology, the politician, and the government. Iran, yes, though, has a tradition of popular movement and uprisings that no other country in the Middle East has. In the last 130 years, years, there have been four great uprisings in Iran. One of them, the tobacco movement, 1891, 92, Then the Constitutional Revolution 1906, then the Posadage Movement in 1951-53, then the Islamic Revolution. Ultimately, I believe that the young people of Iran would start moving. The problem for someone like me, whose main field is history, is that historians are more careful than political scientists. Political scientists often make predictions. Historians don't make, because they know that predictions are worthless. And I remember when my grandmother was born in Iran, in Kashan, was very old and very disappointed of the young generation. She used to say that these days, even the future is not what it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> the future has never been what it used to
4: be, because she's looking for surprises.
5: But ultimately, people, people start in Iran will start moving. Iran is the only country Middle within the Constitution a the Revolution is the only country in the Middle which has two huge revolutions in the 20th century. The question is, how can we predict when people are start is it, Start people will start moving. There is a beautiful song in Hebrew. It says that all of a sudden people wake up one morning and start moving. The problem is that we really don't know what would happen until people would wake up and start moving. I have a sense that this one day will happen. I can promise you no one exactly knows when and no one exactly knows what should happen in order to start moving of the of the young people of Iran, of the women of Iran. But I can promise you when this will happen. You have many scientists, many academicians, and politicians who say we exactly knew well that will happen. When it will happen, don't trust them. In history, there is no way to know when people get tired from one <coughs> system, the realities of life, and they start moving ahead. In Iran, there is a tradition. In Iran, there is the potential. And the main potential is that the aim of the revolution has not been then materialized. The revolution, in my view, was not Islamic. The result of the revolution was the Islamic regime. People went to the revolution because they were fed up with realities of life. They were looking for hope for their children, for the future, Khomeini promised them the hope, if you want the illusion, that will bring them to the, I almost say, to the promised land. This, after 30 years, did not happen. And the main challenge facing Iran itself is this gap between the expectation of people
4: and the realities of life. I think that as long as these aims
5: of the revolution, of the revolutionaries of the 70s, have not been fulfilled, the Islamic revolution is not yet over. Iranian culture has been based for centuries on two major pillars, Islam and, and, and Persian culture. The tradition of Imam Hussein or Ali, and the tradition of Cyrus the Great. And I think that in the last 20 years though, we can see that Iranian culture is being based not on two pillars, but rather on three. Islam, Persian culture, and Western civilization. People ask if, if the West will penetrate into Iran, I can tell you the West is already in Iran. They go to the streets and they chant the death to America, death to America. But when they are thirsty, they want to, uh, the Pepsi, the, uh, the Coke, and the, but they like the, the, the good, the, the real taste, they say. Okay. So I think that there are changes in society, but to make a major change, uh, a lot of time is needed. Thank you very much.
4: so. First, thank you for, the, for a good candy. I think it's great that you think of the Iranian people different uh, from the regime. Regime come and go, the people escape. Uh, An American friend asked me, Why is it that after 50 some years, Iranians have not forgotten the 53 crew? I said, Well, I have bad news for you. Iranians have, have not yet given up on Yazid who came around saying 1,400 (laughs) years ago. You're talking about 53 years. Now, Iranians are good people, but again, they are also the kind of people that they don't need to make them join It's only unfortunate, but they really are very deep in it. My concern is, at the end of the day, as our lawyer would say, that in every process, there's a bottom line. In every case, there's a bottom line. And the bottom line in the Israeli-Iranian relation is that these two nations have, at the end of the day, lived together, and that we cannot afford to make the two peoples into enemies, because regimes come and go,
3: governments come and go. At the end of the day, we must do everything in our power
4: to create the kind of infrastructure needed to create positivism among the two people. My my real real, uh, question to you, or respect, the, what they all expect and do, and I'm to you is, David, you have a very good position in the Iranian and the Israeli community. You could get good at uh, a very tiebreaker. You could get good mediator. You could be, a, good, uh, could be a, 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 a really good good office, and create a kind of an institution that brings some kind of a positive understanding to this relationship, as opposed to allowing people out there to just. Be negative. I think it is incredible that the Iranians and Israelis, okay, develop a new structure that would bring positive ideas among us. And I want you to please think about
3: it. Well, uh, uh,
5: I, I agree with you to a large degree, except for your uh, somehow uh, believe that I can do something significant. Uh, <laughs> I think that you are right, is that
4: uh, there is no hatred about the people with the two, two sides. No, I
5: am so hungry to admit it. And I, I think that Israel did not turn Iran into the enemy. When, the, when Imam Khomeini came to power, Israel did not ask its diplomats to get out of the country. And you know how much Israelis respect the life of its own people at least. And the fact that the Iran- Israeli diplomats remained in Iran after Khomeini came to power, <coughs> means that Israelis were even entertaining the idea to continue relations. I think relations between the two countries would serve the interests of two nations. Iranian Israelis, for some reason, still think that in. in about Iran in the way that you mentioned, as a potential ally of Israel. Because Israelis think about Iran on two different in history. They remember Cyrus the Great and the freedom granted to the Jews to come back and build the temple. And they remember the last Shah, Muhammad Reza Pahlavi, that was nice to the Jews to the way that when I was in Iran, they called him uh, Papa Levi. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but in between, there have like the Jews that really suffered. I think that it's all at the the hands of the Islamic revolution, Islamic regime. If the Islamic regime would work, and and, and I don't want to interfere with your elections, but again, I think that any of the candidates of the presidency would end up dealing with the Iranians. If the Iranians would ask them, they would, would agree. The key to the change is in Tehran, and unfortunately, as long as we have such a system, that everything is in the control of the Bela Valiya Faqi. Ayatollah Janakim it very clearly. He said that even if 20 million people would vote one way and the Valiya Faqi would say something else, the work of the Valiya Faqi is the supreme leader, is the rule. As long as you have such a system and the checking balances are all checking everything in the favor of the conservatives, it's, I think, a big problem. Let me say another word. I think that what concerns me in terms of the Iranian domestic debate, and I agree with what has been said before, that we should encourage the Iranian asking questions and debating among themselves. On many issues, including relations with Israel, including with with, with, Iraq, with our United States, nuclear issue, start, let them start arguing. They, are, they know how to argue among themselves. That's what we do sometimes. So I think that this should, should, be, should be encouraged. What I see in Iran recently is the spectrum of political debate has been significantly narrowed. Look about the, the elections of the First Majlis. You had two Communist Party members running for office. You have Mujahideen al running. You have the Freedom Movement, the National Front, all kinds of movements that were part of the Islamic revolution. In the 90s, the contents became between, between reformists and conservatives. Today the contest in Iran is between conservatives and narrow conservatives, principalists of two major countries So actually the, the the domestic debate has been narrowed in favour of the conservative because today no one speaks about a challenge of the reform movement. Although it may happen <coughs> one day, as I told you, I don't know the future. But currently and what we see also as we mentioned earlier in this this morning is that Islamic regime is made up of shrewd people who draw conclusions from the mistake and correct the mistake that they identify. What they have done in the Majlis elections to the eighth Majlis compared to the sixth Majlis or to the eighth Majlis, with the Council of Experts of December 2006
0: is one example. Okay, so we're actually we have to leave it here because we're out of time. Just a, a couple of very brief announcements, so thank you very much. <laughs> uh, after the Yale uh, the interdisciplinary study of anti-semitism, there's a lot of people to thank. Lauren is still outside organizing. Right. Charles is here, Which thank him too. <laughs> Lauren uh, was amazing and uh, I really appreciate all the speakers who came from Miles and, uh, and went to some trouble to get here. Thank you for coming. And the people who came to here, Aaron, um, a uh, student intern from Nisa is also helping out with the camera. So a lot of people wanted to, want to make this uh, event I think, a great success, so thank you. And also, just for uh, your information, tonight there's a very important person who was born in Iran, who is now the Deputy Prime Minister of Israel. He was in uh, He was in Washington today for strategic discussions with the uh, Bush administration, with of Rice, and other people. And he'll be here speaking about uh, Iran and Israeli-Iranian relations. apropos of your question. He will be here at Yale College, which is at One Prospect Street, at 7:45. I think it'll be a very—it's a very important issue, as we all know, and it's uh, a timely event. So everybody is welcome to that. Uh, it's open to the public. I hope you can come. So again, thank you very much.